0: of the extraordinary and miraculous seem to be a perennial fascination from our earliest days, both as a species and as individuals. Our ancient ancestors credited their shamans and holy men and women with unimaginable powers, while we as children marvelled at the spells of witches and played at being superhuman heroes." Despite repeated attempts by so-called Enlightenment thinkers to condemn these claims and convictions to the trash bin, belief in the extraordinary potential of humankind as a whole and its exemplary individuals in particular has never left us. In this paper, we will examine Ibn Arabi's treatment of an intriguing problem of medieval Islamic psychology, the notion of himma variously translated as concentrated spiritual energy, concentration, spiritual power, high intention, resolve, aspiration, and so forth. According to Ibn Arabi, it is this spiritual energy that fuels prodigious acts that we consider miraculous when we hear hear of or witness them. We begin with a discussion of miracles in medieval Islamic sources, what they are, their specific types, who was deemed worthy of performing them, and what specific powers of the human soul were required to carry them out. We will examine the supposed locus of this potential in the human soul, whether it forms a, a natural part of the motive faculties, as explained by certain philosophers, or is a special power of the heart granted by God, as described by mystics such as Ibn Arabi. Our investigation into the functions and aims of this faculty will lead us from the relatively common pursuits of using the mind to effect a change in one's own body, to concentrating the faculties of one's soul to achieve power over others, to affect nature, and, most extraordinary of all, to bestow existence on one or all of the levels of creation. A survey of some of the many uses Ibn Arabi finds for this power will be examined with illustrations from some of the Sheikh's works, Mawakiya Najum, Twilights of the Stars, Al-Futahat al-Makiya, The Meccan Openings, Rizalat al anwar (Treatise on the Lights, or as it has been titled in one translation, Journey to the Lord of Power, and sus al-Hikam, Bezels of Wisdom. What powers were potentially attainable by a human being, and who could attain them? We will then pass to techniques. What facilitated the acquisition of these powers, and how exactly did they work? Finally, we will, with Ibn Arabi, question whether these powers should be used at all. Breaches of the customary, Hawarik al-Adat, miracles and charismatic gifts. The question of supernatural phenomena that break through the habitual natural order was a source of some contention in the medieval Islamic world. Known under the general term of hawarik al-Adat, literally breaching of what is habitual, these miraculous and out-of-the-ordinary occurrences are amply chronicled in sacred scripture as well as in traditional legend and lore. For the pious Muslim, all miracles are attributable to God, who, in upsetting the normal course of events, displays his power and his will. God's will acts directly on matter, sidestepping all intermediary causes. It is pointless to ask why such things happen. They are inexplicable. But God is not the only one to whom the miraculous is ascribed. Miracles are performed by human beings as well. It was standard practice in Islamic thought to differentiate the miracles performed by prophets called Mu'ajizat from those of a lower order performed by other charismatic individuals called Karamat and from the tricks and sleights of hand performed by magicians and sorcerers, which have a number of different names. The Arabic word for the prophetic miracles, Mu'ajizat, derives from the root jim za which means weakness, incapacity. In its fourth form, of which Mu'ajiz is the active participle, it conveys the meaning of being impossible, or in this case, to be inimitable, as the Quran is said to be, the notion of i'jaz The miracles of the prophets are one-of-a-kind events. Their main purpose was to support the claims of the messengers that their message was of divine origin. The lower level of miracle karama, derives from the Arabic root kaf-ra-mim and has to do with nobility and generosity. It is a token of esteem bestowed upon the saint by the Almighty. The many disputes that broke out over ascribing miraculous powers to the saints need not detain us here. For the majority of those who credited the saints with miracles, the capacity to imitate the messengers formed part of their inheritance And merely served to confirm the veracity of their particular messenger. It was not a power to be actively sought in order to impress others or to be used for egoistic purposes. The human being's role in acquiring these charismatic gifts through various efforts or techniques proves to be somewhat problematic, as we shall see in the course of this paper. While Ibn Arabi goes to great lengths to describe the exemplary virtuous life that the person must live to be worthy of receiving these gifts, in the end, it is completely out of his hands whether he is presented with them, and if he is presented with them, whether he should use them. Sometimes they are given as a test, hence the possibility of their misuse is great. Thus, being able to manifest superhuman powers is not necessarily an indication of a high spiritual rank. For the Islamic philosophers, so-called miracles and charismata did not depart from the natural and explicable. Prophets and messengers were unique only in that they possessed extraordinarily strong souls with well-developed motive, imaginative, and in rarer cases, rational faculties, which allowed them to receive emanations from the higher worlds and translate them into laws and images that could be understood by people of varying innate capabilities. Such notable savants as Al-Kindi, Avicenna, Al-Ghazali, and Ibn Khaldun gave considerable attention to the power of the human mind to affect matter, whether it is in contact with it or not, and not a few were firm believers in the existence, in the existence of occult powers. In the words of Ibn Khaldun, no person doubts the existence of sorcery. We have come across very much of it. We have observed them with our own eyes and have no doubt about it. In his Asherat, Avicenna mentions that one of the causes for strange occurrences that take place in the natural world is the powerful quality of the human soul. The soul, since it is charged with caring for and controlling the body, is capable of influencing matter in a number of ways. At the most basic level, the soul causes the body to move, especially when the emotions of desire or fear are present. In conjunction with the imagination, the soul is capable of creating mental forms that have an influence over one's own body and that of others, either in a positive or negative way. Avicenna gives the example of the doctor who effects a cure by first forming an image of health in his own soul, then using instruments to cure others. Instruments are necessary because of the relative weakness of the physician's soul. He also speaks of the man who falls off a plank placed high above the ground, merely because he has imagined the form of falling, whereas if the plank were placed on the ground, he would never have formed such an image and would have walked along it quite confidently. It is interesting that Ibn Arabi gives the same example in his Mawaki and al-Nujūm. All of these examples attest the power of the human soul over the body to which it is either joined or is in close proximity to. As for the influence of the soul over bodies that are not in contact with it, action at a distance Avicenna does not find it strange that such powers should exist. He says, when ideas and beliefs in them become firmly fixed in the soul, they necessarily come to exist in actuality. It is indeed possible for a body to influence another body through what he calls operational imagination, al-waham al-amil, which appears to be another name for himma. When possessors of noble souls, that is, saints and prophets, concentrate their imagination, they can operate through nature and can heal the sick, afflict evildoers, make rainfall, cause earthquakes to obliterate the wicked, and other actions which take place at a distance. Not only noble souls, however, have this power. Black magic undeniably exists, although Avicenna notes that practitioners of the black arts eventually lose their power through repeated use. For Ibn Arabi, breaching of what is habitual can be separated into three basic categories, magic, miracles, and charismata. The first is that which lies within human power, either by the sheer strength of one's soul, kuwa which can produce effects in the physical realm, or through the special characteristics of names, Both of these operations are frequently connected with sorcery and the practitioner is very much aware of the illusion he is creating in the observer, even if the onlooker himself is fooled. Another category involves two kinds of people who create phenomena they either know or do not know, have no real existence in the external world, but which they are not responsible for voluntarily creating. In the first case, it is possible for the friends of God to knowingly breach the habitual through God's having, in effect, bestowed upon them the power to do so. But the case of the prophets and messengers is somewhat different. An example is the case of Moses' staff turning into serpents, which Moses took to be real. In this instance, Moses' fear was assigned to Pharaoh's magicians that the breaching of the customary was not of Moses' own doing, but an act of God. As Ibn Arabli explains, this is the science of miracles, mu'ajizat, because it is not from a power of the soul, nor is it from the particular characteristics of the names. For had Moses, peace be upon him, turning the staff into a serpent, been from the power of his himmah, or from the names that he gave them, he would not have turned to flee headlong. The charisma of the saints is not like the miracles of the prophets, peace be upon them, because the prophets have no knowledge of that, while those that appear from them is by the himma or a power of the soul or their veracity, siddh, call it whatever you wish. For that reason, they are characterized with the name charismata, karamat, and not called miracles or magic. Miracles are what creatures are not able to replicate, or what is not within the powers of the human being. What is called magic is not completely false or it would be non-existent. For the eye perceives something, there is no doubt about that. And it is not purely true or or it would have real existence in itself. Charismata of the friends of God are not in the same class as magic for they have a reality in themselves. They are existential and they are not a miracle for they involve knowledge and the power of Himma. Himma and Ham. This powerful quality of the soul which both the noble and the base soul appear to share later becomes a cornerstone in the theosophy of Ibn Arabi. Following earlier Sufi masters, following the practice of the verifiers, he generally calls it Himma and occasionally Hammah. But it also says that for him, and those like him, it is called inaya which may be translated as divine providence or solicitude. Its synonymous terms were said by the Sheikh to be sincerity, ikhlas, for the jurists, and presence, khudur, for the Sufis. The word himma is itself is not mentioned in the Quran, But the verbal form of the root, ha-mim-mim, appears in two passages, both found in the surah of Joseph, Quran 12, in connection with Joseph's attraction to the wife of his master, namely Zuleikha in the Islamic tradition. Thus one component of this term is invariably associated with a certain nearly erotic zeal. The notion of himmah came to develop a number of nuanced meanings, from the general and rather common meanings of desire or ambition, to a more specific and elite usage as a tool of inestimable power. In the earliest Arabic lexicons, it appears with the meaning purpose or intention, a thing or object intended, meant, desired or determined in the mind. The early Sufis soon appropriated the term and made it part of their technical vocabulary, giving it the meaning of a faculty firmly rooted in the soul, seeking high things and fleeing from base things. In a reported address to Sahal al the real remarked, We withdrew from you any himma except that to us as Sa'adi in al-Barqa al-Lamia defined Himmah as the power of firm intent in entreaty, accompanied by energy, nashat, in acts of devotion. The use of this word to describe a faculty that enables a human being to perform actions of a miraculous nature is well documented in early Sufi handbooks, such as Kalabadi's Kitab al Ta'aruf and hujwiri's kashfal mashub. It then was sometimes referred to as practical power, kuwa amaliyah, or effective himma, himma fa'aliyah. This exalted use of himma was credited with bringing inventions that are in one's mind into existence. First, the individual invents a likeness of what he wants to make appear in existence. Then, practical power, makes it appear an insensible existence. And we will discuss how this creative power is evoked as we turn to Ibn Arabi's writings below. Himma in Ibn Arabi. Himma appears innumerable times in Ibn Arabi's writings, in many contexts, only a few of which can be given here. Sometimes he gives it a two-part division into the inborn and the acquired, and sometimes a three-part division which takes into account the maturing of spiritual stations. Generally, he refers to it as a power of the heart that can be focused by attention to wajju and calls its ability to produce change in the world to sarruf, free disposal or control. Ibn Arabi had first-hand experience of mystics who wielded incredible spiritual power, including two women whose himma he describes in several of his writings. One of them, for example, had been given the power of the Fatiha, the first verse of the Quran. When she concentrated her spiritual energy, the verse became manifest on the physical plane and carried out her bidding. Another Sufi master, One of Ibn Arabi's first sheikhs, Abu Ja'far al Uriani, was known for his powers of himma through which he could control men's thoughts and overcome the obstacles of existence. It was a well-known fact that sheikhs were able to raise the himmas of their disciples. When a human being exercises his himma, he can be said to be functioning in an analogous way to God, not in his unknowable aspect, but in his aspect of creator of the universe. The difference is in degree. Only God conveys existence from non-existence. The human being can only bring things into existence from pre-existing matter. And whereas God preserves existing things on all levels of existence and at all times, the perfect human being preserves the existence of only one object on only one level, and only for as long as his himma remains fixed. It is in this that the saint or prophet can be said to have creative power. Ibn Arabi claims that the word of the perfect human being is like the word of God concerning something. The former wants to come into existence, And when he says, be, at that very instant, the thing comes into existence. However, with the permission of God. Because God has become his members and his physical and spiritual faculties. So in fact, there is only one actor here, one will here, God. In other places, Ibn Arabi says that for the human being, to say the basmala, the formula, there is no God but Allah, is the human equivalent of God saying, be. The power of actualizing what one desires will belong to all felicitous souls in the garden. But in this world, such power is rare. One way that someone having this power creates what he desires is through his knowledge of the subtle connections or rays between the heavenly spheres and the human being, this individual contemplates a particular ray and knows how to, act, uh, how to activate it in order to create an effect. Through his himma, he exercises free disposal, Tassavaruf, over various levels of creation. It may be in the world of dominion and witnessing, Mulk Shahada, the world of the unseen and Malakut, the world of lum- luminous spirits, the Barzakh, and jabarut or the divine world. In the suprasensory realms of the unseen and malakut, free disposal is exercised over the spirits of the celestial spheres. Through incantations of divine names, fumigations and operations of this sort, forms associated with the planets are said to descend to the imaginal plane, giving the individual knowledge of God's effects in the world of generation and corruption. In the suprasensory worlds of luminous spirits, the Barzakh and Jabirut, free disposal is exercised over the inhabitants of these levels, enabling the individual with this power to know the in-between areas between contraries, possess fine discretion through their knowledge of attributes, and to receive honour at every level of existence. In the divine realm, the highest of all, The rare persons having free disposal here have the power to call down whatever God wills, anything on any of the other planes of existence. But with their exquisite sense of courtesy toward the divine, they abandon this power and assume the outward guise of powerlessness. Himma in the Futuhat. In the Futuhat, there is hardly a chapter that doesn't mention Himma, sometimes in the most imaginative of ways. For example, as the fabulous Barat that carries its rider on mystical ascents, imitating the Prophet Muhammad's Mitraj, or as the riding camel of a noble Bedouin Arab. In the interests of time, we can only refer to a few of these mentions here. The term himma appears initially in the foreword to the book as one of the steps in a chain when one contemplates an action on the spiritual path. First comes the engraving of the thought, hajis in the mind, which is stimulated by either desire, ragba, to be near or to contemplate God, fear, rahba, of punishment or of being veiled from God's presence, or veneration, pa'zim, of God. This is followed by desire or will, irada, to accomplish one's aim. Then comes determination or resolve, asm, to carry it out. And next comes himma, and finally intention, niya. In the initial chapter of the Futuhat, the mysterious youth the author meets at the Kaaba, demands an accounting of what he has learned so that he may know his himma. Thus it appears as a kind of criterion or touchstone to gauge a person's level of knowledge and to test his sincerity. At a later point, Ibn Arabi claims that without himma, a person's spiritual strivings come to naught. In chapter 4 of the Futuhat, Himma is described as a kind of desire or zeal that must be awakened. It is a quality that survives the death of its possessor, leaving a trace in the places where he has lived, such as Abu Yazid's home or certain mosques and zariyas that can be felt by a sensitive heart. The Himma of a person's companions also has a tremendous effect on the individual. Other occasions to mention himma are in the association with invocations and conjurations of letters, in the second and fifth chapters of the Futuhat, where letters, where the letters the lamb and alif combination in chapter two in La ilaha illallah, and in the two lambs in the Allah of the same formula in chapter five, are said to possess himma. In the case of the La. The lamb is said to yearn for the alif, and their entwined configuration reflects this movement of himma. The lamb, through its passionate inclination toward the alif, exercises its himma over it. Others see it as a representation of the real descent to the lower heaven, and that the lamb's entwining its leg with it is an attempt to hang on to it, like the people of night vigils who fear the departure of the real and their ceasing to commune with him at the rising of the dawn. The alif, a symbol for the real, is represented in the spiritual hierarchy as the pole, who pervades the universe through his himma. The lamb, which in shape resembles the alif, represents the servant created upon the form of the real. The two are knotted in a loving embrace, Whose disentanglement contains a secret that the Shaykh does not reveal. As for the two lambs of Allah, the second lamb is desired lamb, and the first lamb directs its himma towards it. As far as the other letters are concerned, Ibn Arabi says that every letter that moves your himma towards the real is a vertical letter, and every letter that moves your himma toward creation is a curved letter. Every letter that moves your himma toward engendered beings is a horizontal letter. And when operations that use letters are involved, a science called the science of the saints or friends of God by al atiyadhi the practitioner is cautioned never to use a conjuration involving only one letter. God has brought all into existence by the use of three letters, two manifest, kaf, noon, and one concealed, wow, as in Kuhn. So it is the utmost of discourtesy to operate using only one letter, although individuals having this power can effectively use it. Every letter has its own characteristics, and every form or shape that that letter takes, whether written, spoken, thought or conjured, has an effect in the universe. The prophet Jesus and his followers are credited with effective hymna and expertise in operations involving letters. Another mark of the charismatic individuals who follow the path of Jesus is the ability to transfer a certain state they possess to an individual who is prepared to receive it by either embracing him, kissing him, or clothing him in his garment. Ibn Arabi gives several accounts he personally witnessed or was informed about. Another charisma they have is knowledge of the natures of things which allows them to know what properties in the natural world are beneficial or harmful. Trees and grasses can be heard proclaiming their merits to such individuals although heeding these secondary causes can prove to be a test. In chapter 41, the ascent to God of the hymnas of the people of night is described in personified form. God is said to descend to the Himmas at whatever level they are able to ascend to heavens. At whatever level they are able to ascend to, heavens, footstool, throne, all merciful breath, and even the blinding cloud, to listen to their supplications before him. The Futuhat assigns one short chapter, chapter 229, exclusively to Himma, initially divided into three stages. One, awakening himma. Two, voluntary himma. And three, real himma. The first is when one comes to realise this power and cleanses the heart from all material desires. The second is the actual practice of affecting the universe through concentration of intention. Ibn Arabi here mentions a certain group in North Africa who can kill a person by focusing their himma which clearly demonstrates that not all himma is good. And the third kind, true himma, is the merging of individual himma with that of the one. In this highest category of himma, the willingness to affect anything is seen to be delusion. And in this comes the irony. The true Gnostic would never exercise himma unless commanded to do so by God. For the true Gnostic realises his state as servant and prefers to leave creation to his lord. And finally, he realises that there is only one agent. Himma in the Muwaki'a Najum. In one of Ibn Arabi's early works, the Muwaki'a Najum, he discusses the various types of miracles granted to the saint. Among these miracles are miracles of the eight organs, of sight, hearing, tongue, hand, foot, stomach, genitalia, and heart, which form the standard stock and trade of the saints. Miracles of sight include seeing a distant visitor's arrival before they arrive, seeing the Kaaba when you pray so that you can face it, seeing in wakefulness what others can only see in dreams one may be able to see the spiritual and earthly Malakut. And in the Futuhat, he adds that it is possible to fix one's gaze upon spiritual beings, such as the jinn when they take form, so that they must remain in this form as long as the human with this power continues to look at them. God's intention in showing his servant these signs is to increase the servant's desire to access the higher realms and to be able to function in them. Miracles of Hearing. The greatest miracle of hearing, says the Sheikh, is for a person to hear within himself that he is on the road to salvation. Other charismata may include hearing and understanding the voice of all creation, even entities that are considered inanimate, such as stones while these miracles were said by exoteric scholars to be created by God at a particular time, in a particular thing. Ibn Arabi disputes this by saying, the mystery of life fills the entire world. And he gives the example of the Prophet Muhammad's being able to hear the pebbles in his hand, praising their Lord who gave them existence. Another gift of audition is hearing people speak without seeing them. And Ibn Arabi claims to have experienced this gift in its various forms himself. Miracles of the Tongue. It is no accident that, in the Mawaki Anajum, Himma is discussed most fully in connection with speech, for the power of the word to bring things into manifestation is a feature which, as we have seen, is connected with God's creation through the word Be. God has granted a few of his servants, such as Jesus, the power of the word to bid the lame, leprous, and blind to be healed and even to raise the dead through his permission. Less extravagant miracles of speech include being able to converse with angels and jinn, and the ability to predict and announce the future. Miracles of the hand include putting your hand into your pocket and when you extract it, you find it is white, such as Moses was said to do. Making water run from your fingers, which Muhammad was said to do. Throwing dust in the face of enemies to put them to flight, also credited to Muhammad. And raising your hand in the air and then opening it to find silver and gold. Miracles of the foot include pleating the earth, which is the covering of distances in a very short time, being in two places simultaneously, walking on air and walking on water. Ibn Arabi says that he has personally seen people walk on air, and he mentions seeing Hida levitating on his prayer mat to disprove one of Ibn Arabi's companions who didn't believe in the breaching of the customary. And on another occasion, he saw him walk on water without wetting his feet. In the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi links various sorts of miracles to different prophets and religious communities. For example, the followers of Jesus do not walk on air, but do walk on water. The Mohammedan walks on air in imitation of the Prophet Muhammad, who on the night of power was carried through the air. Muhammad said regarding Jesus, if his certainty were increased, he would walk on the air. A question then arises about whether even the non-prophets and messengers in the Mohammedan community are thus superior to Jesus who did not walk on air. Ibn Arabi discounts this, saying that there is no doubt that Jesus possessed himma. We have learned that our walking on air is only through the property of veracity, sudk, a term closely associated with himma, with respect to following the prophet not that the followers of Muhammad excel Jesus with respect to certainty. As Ibn Arabi says, each of us knows his watering place. Walking on air comes from following Muhammad because of the special face that he has in his station, just as the followers of Jesus walk on water through the property of following him. God singles out certain messages with messengers with specific breachings of custom and their followers and heirs in turn inherit these charismatic gifts. Ibn Arabi brings forth the analogy originally coined in Kitab al-Yakin when the elite slaves cling to the sandals of their princes when they enter into the sultan's presence while some princes who are not permitted to enter remain outside the door. The slaves that enter with their masters are in this case higher in rank than the princes who have no permission to enter. Miracles of the stomach, a category that includes clothing, are the following. Discerning foods and drinks that are forbidden or dubious by receiving some sign from God. Ibn Arabi describes the case of a sheikh whose finger contained a vein that would beat if the substance was not to be ingested. Feeding the multitude with a little food, drinking putrid water and finding it sweet Eating for someone else who then feels full without having taken a single bite. Seeing God in his names, the provider, the just, the wise, the equitable, and the one who brings together. As for miracles involving cloth or clothing, Ibn Arabi speaks of a man who was able to pull great quantities of cloth from under his turban. The chapter devoted to miracles pertaining to the genitalia is remarkable for its connection of chaste conduct to the ability to heal the sick and raise the dead. The model for this is, of course, Jesus. Miracles of the heart include learning without any created teacher, only from God, such as happened with the immortal saint Khidr. The miracles of Jesus are also associated with the heart as well as with hearing and speech since he is connected with the science of letters. Himma in Risalas al-Anoir, Journey to the Lord of Power. In another early work, the Risalas al Anwar, Himma is mentioned in connection with spiritual retreat, Khalwa, in which the mystic is able to imitate on the imaginal plane the prophet's ascent to the presence of God. The difference being that the prophet made the journey in his physical body, whereas the mystic makes it in his spiritual one. Among the many requisites and cautions that even Arabi gives the seeker is, one that should not a- is, is that one should not attempt to retreat unless one has reached the first degree of trust, a state which manifests itself in four miraculous signs. Crossing the earth, walking on water, traversing the air, and being fed by the universe. These are only the first of the miraculous signs and revelations that will accompany the mystic throughout his life. Miraculous powers appear more often than not as tests that God spreads out before the mystic in order to see if he stops there. If you stay with what is offered, God will escape you but if you attain him, nothing will escape you. During the course of the retreat, the mystic is advised to persist in the concentrating of his heart and focusing its attention on on the desired goal, which is to attain to God's presence. Thus, himma becomes the thread which leads him through the maze of extrasensory perceptions, which he will encounter on his ascent. As the seeker ascends through the realms, successively shedding his attachments to the lower planes of existence, a vast array of imaginal forms present themselves to him, and in effect he is given power of disposal to Suraroth over them. The first realm is the material one, in which the mystic is offered mastery over the sensory world and perceives what others cannot. Although one can can see through walls and discover what people generally hide, the seeker is advised to manifest the divine name, the Veiler. From the physical realm, one passes to the imaginal level. Abstract intelligible ideas are presented to him in sensory form. He is able to interpret symbols that present themselves in visions and dreams. Next, the various kingdoms of minerals, vegetables and animals present themselves and reveal their secrets. Beyond this, the mystic is able to see the infusion of life force into lives and what influence, what influence this has in every being according to its disposition. According to Ibn Arabi's commentator, Abdul Karim Jilli, this is best demonstrated by the power granted to Jesus to breathe life, into the lifeless. Ever upward the mystic ascends on the wings of his himma until he reaches his goal. In affirming that such a goal is attainable by the mystic as well as the prophet, Ibn Arabi says, know that prophethood and sainthood both share in three things. One, in knowledge without acquired learning. Two, in action by himma the heart's intention in what is customarily believed not possible except through the body or that for which the body has no capacity. Three, in seeing the world of images in the sensory world. The two differ solely in their mode of addressing people. Himma in the fasus Ibn Arabi's presentation of Himma in the Fasus is made within the framework of the various facets of knowledge personified by the twenty eight prophets says so hidden one. We have briefly, briefly mentioned Jesus in connection with his bestowing life on the lifeless. From a discussion in Futuhat, it is not clear whether Ibn Arabi thinks that in the case of Jesus this is a true example of exercising Himma. His bestowal of life takes place under the rubric of the divine command be, with God's permission. Whereas bringing things into existence by means of one's own himma is not of this science. The saint Abu Yazid also brought to life a dead ant, again with God's permission, The chapter devoted to the prophet Isaac is notable for its depiction of the mystic's ability to create in the imaginal realm. He writes, every man creates by his fancy in the imaginative faculty, that which has existence nowhere else, this being a common faculty. The Gnostic, however, by his concentration, himma, creates that which has existence beyond the origin of the concentration, Indeed, the concentration continues to maintain its existence, which depletes it in no way at all. Should the attention of the Gnostic be deflected from the maintenance of what he has created, it will cease to exist, unless the Gnostic commands all planes of existence, in which case such deflection does not arise, since at all times he is present on some plane or another. When the Gnostic who has such a command creates something by his concentration, it is manifest in his form on every plane. In this case, the forms, each on a different plane, maintain each other, so that if the Gnostic is absent on a certain plane or planes, while present on another or others, all the forms on all the planes are maintained by the form on the plane to which his attention is given. Lack of attention is never total, either with the generality of men or the elite. On the other hand, with the human being, attention is never complete, as it is in the case of God. He maintains each form himself at all times. The prophet Moses is described as focusing his hymna on the fire until he was granted a vision of God. We come to know from the theophany of God in the form of the fire Because of the concentration of Moses' intention upon it, that concentration produces effects. And it, or concentration, Jamaiyyah, is acting and producing effects through intention, which is aspiration, himmah, and the turning of one's attention towards something with all of one's faculties. This turning of one's attention towards something with all of one's faculties can also be used to produce things that fall under the category of illicit magic, such as the sorcerers of Pharaoh, who made ropes appear as snakes. Again, we have a striking contrast between the good and evil uses of himma. Himma is also mentioned in connection with the prophet Lot, who, as described in the Quran, cries out to God that he is powerless to prevent his people from doing evil. Ibn Arabi says, that God created the human being weak, then gave him strength, then returned him to weakness. This is true not only of a person's physical constitution, but also of his spiritual one. From a stage of initial weakness, the human being progresses to the ability to exercise free disposal and influence through himma. But in the case of great prophets and saints, the next stage is that of weakness, a weakness that results from direct knowledge of God. The prophet is called weak and helpless because his will is extinguished in the will of God. In connection with the prophet Muhammad, Ibn Arabi notes that one of the inner meanings of the word Quran is gathering and concentration of intention. This concentration is seen as a miracle in itself because of the multiple realities which man embraces in his physical and spiritual capacities. The human being, then, is seen in his perfected form as corresponding to the Quran with its multiple verses. Concentration, therefore, is seen as the absorption of multiplicity by oneness. And this is the true himma. A final case should be noted in passing, and that is the case of Solomon, who was given the power of unmediated subjugation of nature. He understood the speech of all animals, could summon the wind to blow in whatever direction he chose, and commanded whole armies of jinn. Interestingly enough, Ibn Arabi says, we are all able to do this, but only by God's command. Ibn Arabi notes that Solomon had a sovereignty that no other prophet had, and this was to manifest free disposable within the visible world, without any exercise of himma. Nonetheless, it was a power that he did not choose to display. When the throne of Bilkis, the queen of Sheba, was brought from Sheba to Solomon in the twinkling of an eye, it was Solomon's vice-regent, Asis, who accomplished the miracle, by focusing his power and concentrating his himma. Unlike other strong-souled individuals, Solomon uniquely possessed the ability to subject nature to his will by his command alone, which Ibn Arabi considers a higher form of effective power than concentrating and directing one's himma. Techniques. Muslim savants use a plethora of techniques to focus their himma on the intelligible or spiritual world in order to gain powers and insights from it. These included solitary retreat, khalwa and withdrawal, Uzla, invocation of the names of God, Vikr, meditation and conjuration of the Arabic letters, and prayer. The philosopher Avicenna even used wine drinking as an aid to concentration. The goal could range anywhere from intuitively hitting upon the middle term of a syllogism, as was Avicenna's aim in this bizarre example, to harnessing cosmic energies to affect matter at a distance, or even bringing something into being that did not exist before, a power accorded to extraordinary individuals, whether deemed good or evil. No matter how exalted or debased the ambition, the perceived need was to strengthen and focus one's spiritual willpower and resolve in order to accomplish a given end. At the most basic level, Ibn Arabi considers exemplary ethical behaviour to be a sine qua known for attaining the quality of sidq, or veracity, the first step to acquiring himma. This primarily consists of avoiding what is forbidden or considered dubious by the law and assuring that, in every case, the actions of one's various bodily members engage in only the commanded and recommended categories of behaviour. Emptying the soul of every vain thought so that it is able to listen to God's voice, whether alone or in company, is another necessary action. Refraining from slanderous and unnecessary speech keeps the tongue pure. Fasting is a way to control not only the desires of the stomach, but also those of the sexual organs. Giving charity trains the hand in its proper function. Engaging in proper livelihood and hurrying to perform obligations are ways to keep the feet on the straight path. Keeping one's eyes off forbidden sights and awake in prayerful vigil is good for training the eye. Then there are specific activities ascribed to the Sufis. Constant mention and recollection of God, dhikr. Cautious engagement in sessions of musical audition, samah; Scrupulous accounting for all of one's acts, muhasabah. And solitary retreat, khalwa. All of these may be helpful in preparing the individual to receive God's bestowal of charismatic gifts and the power to use them, whether he chooses to employ them or not. The suppression of himma, or the will to powerlessness. We have had the occasion in this paper to allude to the ultimate undesirability of exercising one's himma to break the customary course of events, and it seems fitting to end with this very important point. Even when an individual possessed extraordinary powers, the ability to work wonders was thought to be of minor importance to many of the Sufi masters. The only himma that even Arabi approves of is that which is sanctioned by God and attached to his will. And the only charismatic gift that is really worth having is special knowledge of God, a knowledge of secrets that is hidden from most people and which does not depend on the rational faculty in any way. It is the knowledge vouchsafed to individuals such as Khidah, who was given knowledge from the living God's very presence. It may seem from the prodigious catalogue of miraculous effects that accompany possessors of effective Himma that no higher function can be accorded a human being. But again and again Ibn Arabi reiterates that this is not the level of the most perfect individuals. In one passage of the Futuhat, he compares the Gnostics to the knowers in terms of their himmah, saying that the Gnostics employ their himmah to arrive at proximity with God, Bilah. Thus they remain in the state of subsistence. The knowers, on the other hand, are beyond all that. They are annihilated in God. Hence they belong to God, Lilah utterly and have erased all trace of individual subsistence examples of those who refuse to exercise their himma include the super saint abu yazid al gustami who recounts during my novitiate god used to bring before me wonders and miracles but i paid no heed to them and when he saw that i did so he gave me the means of attaining knowledge of himself Here we have a classic example of God's testing the saint by giving him supernatural powers and granting him something far more valuable when he eschews them. It is weakness rather than power that is championed by Ibn Arabi, since it more completely describes the essential condition of the human being. God is he who creates you of weakness, Quran 3054. It is the initial state of humans as well as their final one. The intervening period of powerful maturity is a time of testing to see whether the human being will wax proud and make claims for himself that belong exclusively to God. The listener may be surprised to discover that some of the Sheikh's biggest heroes are inanimate rocks, passive riders and suckling babes. The best thing one can say about a person is to call him or her a servant of God, who realises his or her utter dependence and smallness in the face of God's grandeur. The Malamia, or people of blame, who are extraordinary individuals in ordinary guise, even desired the opprobrium of the world to keep themselves in a constant state of abasement and humility the Malamiyyah, says the sheikh, are not known for performing acts with their himma. We conclude then with the ultimate paradox that for Ibn Arabi, himma is both a necessary faculty, so vital to the human being's spiritual progress, that without it, the true reality of God cannot be known. And a faculty that must be abandoned, or at least subsumed in the will of God.